welcome to the Intuitive Insights podcast series. I'm Nina Lockwood, founder and director of Intuitive Interim and Executive Search. Throughout this series, I will be sharing engaging conversations with talented leaders from across the UK transport sector. Hello and welcome to Intuitive Insights podcast with my guest this week, Neil Holm, Managing Director of the TransPennine Route Upgrade. The TRU, as it is known, is the multi-billion pound railway programme that will better connect passengers in the north between Manchester, Huddersfield, Leeds and York. Neil's had a fascinating career history to date and I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Neil Holm, Managing Director of TransPennine Route Upgrade, a very warm welcome to the Intuitive Insights podcast. I am really looking forward to this conversation. I've had a sneaky look at your LinkedIn profile and I am blown away by the jobs that you've done and the um, the programmes of work that you've been focused on. So I'm really looking forward to hearing how does somebody I'm not going to I'm not going to steal your thunder so I'm not going to mention any of them but when I saw the list and I was kind of like how does somebody get to work on this many things of of kind of huge huge magnitude so um I'm not going to steal your thunder I'm going to hand over to you I would love to know your career story where did it start where have you been and what you're doing now tell us about TRU over to you I'm I'll probably just introduce my job right now and then I'll, I'll get to how did it end up here. So I'm, I'm the managing director of something called the Transpennine Route Upgrade. So for those of you who don't know what that is, it's, it's one of the biggest rail programmes in the UK and actually one of the biggest infrastructure programmes in the UK. Um, over £10 billion upgrading all the railways between Manchester and York and massively transformational for the north of England, a real generational opportunity. But we'll get we'll get to that. But I'll talk a bit about how did it end up here. So... Um, so Neil Holm, um, uh, married to Catherine with, with two children, Elliot and Imogen, which are which are eight and seven, that are sort of key parts of how did I get here and, and what, what makes me me. But <clears throat> if I start with a career story, so I grew up near Glasgow. Um, I left school in fifth year, and, and I left school in fifth year because, you know, I thought it was really clever. And I thought, well, I'm going to go to university. This is going to be fine. And I'll pick up maybe in those early days some really seminal moments that probably changed changed my whole life and ended up you know staying with me in my career that I'm with now. So I joined um, Strathclyde University. I did chemistry. I did chemistry because I I was quite good at it. I thought, well, this can't be too difficult. And about two years in, I found out I was pretty rubbish at it. Um, and I was I was rubbish at it for two reasons not 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 because I wasn't bright enough to do it, but because I wasn't really that into it mm. and actually I wasn't putting that much effort into it so just a moment one number one in those university years was I spent a whole summer going what am I going to do in my life you know I'm nowhere near as good as I thought I was mm. I wasn't getting the grades that I should have been in and and I was probably heading heading in some way shape or form to dropping out of university <clears throat> so huge amount of reflection and a lot of support from from my parents um and decision making and I went back here and I did mechanical engineering and it was one of the greatest things I've ever done. I got great grades. Just clicked. It was just something that just really got me out of bed in the morning. And and, and it is something I still got a huge passion for is is engineering. Um, and then um, the next thing was probably about third year. I went to Canada to work. Um, now on reflection, I did absolutely no planning whatsoever for this trip to Canada. Right. And I turned, I turned up in Vancouver with a visa, going, right, where's my job? And they said, you need to go find a job. And I was like, right, okay. And to make matters worse, I went to work somewhere called Whistler, which is a sort of ski resort up in the mountains that nobody went to. Right. And I probably spent three or four weeks. There was no work. It just rained the whole time. I thought, I'm going to run out of money. I'm going to have to come home. And it just clicked. It just clicked in. The sun came out. I ended up getting a job in a five-star hotel, basically running the front house doing valley parking. It was like Ferris Bueller's day off was every day. <laughs> and um, and uh, I had the best summer. I had the best summer. But, but what that really taught me was you're on your own. You know, that was the first time my career was like, you're on your own. You know, you need to do this. Somebody's not going to do it for you. And that that taught me a lot. It was a great, great summer, but it was, it was you know, a very, very tough start to that. And then the last one, was um, I did a postgrad at, at Cambridge, some called the Advanced Course in Design, Manufacturing, Management, which, which was just this incredible course. It was 
some of the best people in the country coming to teach you, very industry-based. You did eight projects. You went to Japan. You went to Australia to visit companies. But that, that course fundamentally, you know, changed me. Mm-hmm. But the re- the way I got into that course, I thought was interesting. That 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 wasn't the learning was the course. I learned a lot from it. But the, the way I got into it was really hu- interesting. Somebody came from Cambridge to say, "Come and join this course. Come and apply." And I applied. Did the interview. Got in, which was was a little bit surprised about and very pleased about. But I eventually found that I was the only person from Strathclyde who applied for that course, even though they spoke to loads of people and loads of people said, "Right, this is a great thing to do," and. I think what I learned from that is if you don't ask, you don't get. So if you don't put yourself forward for things, nobody else is going to do it for you. Mm. And, you know, that sort of challenge to say, well, you might not know what the answer is and it might be scary, but just put your hand up and go and, you know, it, it'll probably end up being a yeah. great experience. Yeah. And That's actually, you know... Big learning point, that, isn't it? Massive. massive. Because, and it, and it kind of up speaks as well, I think, to this imposter syndrome that lots of people talk about, where it's like, well, I'm not good enough for that. Why should I? Why, you know, it's Cambridge, bloody hell, you know, even the, even the title of the course, you know, I'm kind of like, oh, right, okay, what's that all about? But it, you're absolutely correct. If you if you don't ask, you don't get. And what's the worst thing that can happen? You don't get accepted and you're no worse off than you were before. Yeah, and I think that's... that's uh... So the Cambridge was, was half Cambridge undergraduates, half other universities. And I think the difference between those two is the weight of expectation if you're an undergrad is you expect to go and be successful. Yeah. You know, it gets drilled into you. And that doesn't happen everywhere else. So having confidence in yourself and actually taking a risk. What's, you know, when you're 20-odd, you think, oh, this is a big risk. It's not a big risk. You don't have kids. You don't really need a big salary. You do, all those things that, that life catches up with you later in life. You're not, you know, when you can't knacker your career because you don't have one. So, what's the worst that can happen? Mm-hmm. So, um, that that was that was great, fabulous learning. And then, I, and then I joined a company called Base Systems, which probably a lot of people have o- heard of. Uh, I joined the aerospace division up in Wharton to do a, a, a five-year project management graduate scheme, and that was, you know, great opportunity. And lots of people were doing business stuff trying to really chase chase a career and I said well why did I come here well I came here to build airplanes right and um had some really great mentors um some really 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 great mentors I'm still in contact with some of them actually and um two things happened I, I got to basically be the project engineer I thought it was a project manager but it was really the project engineer at aircraft called IPA5 which was the very first uh, production uh, development aircraft for Typhoon for, right. for the for the single seats, for the single seats. There'd been twins before that. And that was like, well, wow, this is how we build airplanes and get them out the door. And then a few years later, they were building the, the Tronche 2 flight test aircraft. And they asked me to come back and, and do that. And that, I think, was my first real experience of you, you're responsible for this team. I had a probably integrated team right. of about 30 or so people. And, you know, you're responsible for making this happen. And... I think that was my first experience of what I call true project leadership, where you like it's quite a, a lonely place, but you can also really see this is how you can really make a difference. Mm. I remember standing on a flight line at Wharton, we're trying to do a, a big test with this aircraft out in the flight line, try to run the engines, and on a Friday afternoon, and everyone wanted to go home and go golfing or go to the pub. I was just, can you just stay for another two hours? Because I know if we got two hours, if we finish that test, mm. you'd probably save another three or four days the following week. Right. And I think out of that for me, you know, how do you how do you get how do you get people to really engage and really commit? Yeah. Um, how do you, how do you make the most of every single day? You know, with these big programs that we're on, and, and TRU is exactly the same. It's not it's not generally the big stuff. It's about winning every day, as opposed to, you know, some big bang event. Now there are a few of those which we'll probably get to when I talk about the carrier program. Mm. But that was great, you know. And seeing seeing the aircraft, you've probably spent what two years building and testing fly for the first time is just just an incredible experience sense of achievement there are so many things that we do in life aren't there and so many jobs that we do where you don't get to see the end result because you're working on a part of it um and you don't see what happens at the end it's it's kind of why I used to back in the day I used to one of my things at a weekend was to bake a cake (laughs) 
because that sense of satisfaction from having a load of ingredients to doing it to then seeing it sat on the cake stand at the end it felt like this is the only bit of kind of complete a finisher bit that I'm getting at the moment mm. because everything else we're not we're not getting there but I'm really interested just to kind of pick you up on that getting everybody to stay two hours later and and I have no doubt that they did but what is it about your style of leadership that meant the people were happy to stay for that two hours when they all wanted to go off and go to the pub and go golfing etc what is it about you that got them to stay how did you engage I think I think first you got to know people. So you got to, you know, when you really have to get commitment and put your foot in the gas, you've got to know people. So I, I, I knew everyone really well. I spent a huge amount of time doing what I call visible leadership, where you're out speaking to people, what's going on, um, find out what, you know, it's not about formal reviews with, with these individuals. I used to, I used to at the weekends when the team were in, um, when my wife, makes this story about is it time for you to make bacon rolls and what when they, when I used to ask the team to come in at the weekend I used to get up early and make them all bacon rolls there's only a team maybe 10 people or something yeah. and bring them in and yeah. she said why are you doing that I said because it's my job to keep everyone in the boat she mm. says I don't I'm not going to contribute very much on a Saturday morning but they are and you know they they should know that I understand and value it yeah and I think that's you know you you, you put all that credit in as you go along and you have the relationships, you keep commit to people. So when you when you really need to put your foot in the gas, and I've got quite an extreme version of this story that that that, that there's a video on YouTube on actually, right. <laughs> um, then you can you can make that moment because sometimes those moments they're the they're the real difference between you know success and failure. Yeah, um, and that that was the first time I learned that that actually your leadership intervention can make a huge difference. Mm. You know. You know, I'll do that. I mean, I don't really do any work. I mean, don't tell my boss that. But, <laughs> but there, there is a point as a leader you need to, you need to, you know, intervene and yeah. and but support people because these are scary things to do. Mm. You know. Yeah. So I think I think knowing people, being really clear on the purpose, but also being clear on the implications. You know, yeah. so a little bit more effort on a Friday. We could end up with three days of effort. Airplane, airplanes are quite fickle. So once you shut them down, they generally don't want to restart particularly right. easily on the Monday. You come back Monday morning, the gremlins have been in over the weekend and there's problems all over the place. Right. So you know that once it's running, you need to be out there testing. Mm. Um, interesting enough, I ran, a, I ran a big EMC trial about the same time and sort of uh, electromagnetic trials they're very difficult because of different factions you have to bring to a lot of very very clever people and then very operational and they tend to run for a long time and my director said well what do you need to run this what do you need to succeed i said i need a food budget i said well, what do you mean i said well everybody's on different shifts now i can spend the next three months talking to unions about how we realign everybody's shift patterns mm. or we can just feed everybody in the morning there's two shift patterns we have an early shift and a late shift we just yeah. feed everyone in the morning breakfast and we'll feed dinner to everybody at night and everybody will have their breaks at the same time yeah. and I was spending I don't know £4,000 a month in takeaways right. but you know <laughs> it's been one of the biggest defence programmes in Europe and exactly it's all relative isn't it it's absolutely relative but if it gets it over the line on time and and in budget overall then it's worth it isn't it absolutely oh, worth it treating people well and looking after them yeah. um and and you know feeding people is probably the cheapest way you can you can you can get people engaged. Yeah. yeah. And the 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 role the, the armed forces are all never great at this. You know feeding people is a big big part of the job. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So that was typhoon. That was great. And then and then I did did, did somebody. So I went did five years in in Munich in in Eurofighter um, running the, the 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 supply and construction side of this Saudi typhoon program. Yeah. And that was just such a great experience. I mean, firstly. Myself and Catherine were in Munich with, with no kids and and the lifestyle you have out there, which was great. And I'm sure everybody thought it was out there on holiday, but it was a tough job, uh, a lot of pressure right. um, to support the Saudi Saudi pro program, but hugely diverse, hugely diverse, and it totally challenged and dis dispelled the um, unconscious biases you would have around different cultures i mean i had my team was italian spanish germans and, and brits right. uh, and it was it was fabulous um and 
you know, we did a good job. And the way that we worked together and the way we were diverse was was a real eye-opener for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that experience of collaboration, you know, basically leaving your parochial stereotypes at the door yeah. in order to lead very diverse teams mm. led me on to my next programme, which was to join the aircraft carrier programme. So mm. I remember speaking to to one of, one of my mentors at that time. I said, well, what do you do next? He said, they need good people on carrier. That's a tough programme. I said, okay, oh, that sounds good. And um, I said, well, I don't know much about shipbuilding. I said, but you know a lot about collaboration. And that mindset on collaboration was a was really important but and, and carry was tough you know basically it brought together the three main competing defense companies in the uk and said you need to go and build this thing the uk's never built before really some that that quite an incredible machine the aircraft carriers so i joined the queen elizabeth class aircraft carrier program yeah uh, at much personal risk you know i left the domain that i understood um i took a pretty big promote uh, demotion um, I took a job that, quite frankly, wasn't really a job. Right. Uh, and probably spent six six months going, well, why did I do that? Um, and then, uh, and then a little bit, a little bit like the Canada experience, it came good. Um, so I was made head of program for Queen Elizabeth. Um, worked for the project director, a fabulous guy called John Pearson. Um, and um, we basically pulled together the the one team that delivered Queen Elizabeth, and that was a you're a really exceptional team. And, there's the, 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 you know, I can't take credit for that. There was a huge amount of effort in the preceding years of people pulling all that together. But it, but it had to come together for Queen Elizabeth. And it was it was a real bumpy road. But um, and, I, and I sat and worked on that for John and ran the programme for John um, for till just before sea trials. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would love to have gone through that phase of sea trials, but they pulled me off to go and basically be the programme director for Prince of Wales now. So you'd done something right? I'd done something right, yeah. I mean, I'd, we reshaped the programme. We got the machine to work. We got the, the, the way of pulling together such a complex organisation, a complex product. Mm. We got that to work. Now, Queen Elizabeth had huge numbers of challenges. Um, but actually, you know, it got delivered on schedule. It works. The Navy use it. It's a, yeah. it's a good piece of kit. It's a good piece of kit. And that was a, that was a very, 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 very tough programme. Very tough. So Prince of Wales, um, so Prince of Wales, I think in, in your career, when you get offered the job, that comes under the category of a de- development opportunity. Yeah. In reality, it's a hospital pass. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, uh, when we picked up that job, there was no time and no money. You get a little right. letter and they go, well, there's no more time, there's no more money. And we, uh, we needed to take about a year off the schedule to deliver on contract. Right. Um, so in comparison to Queen Elizabeth's schedule, we needed to t- take about a year off it. And uh yeah, I mean we just did some some really radical things that nobody had ever done before. We we held a nerve, we undocked the ship. So I'll tell tell that little story. We undocked the ship at Christmas two thousand and seventeen, it would have been. And there's a great video of this on YouTube. I think it's, it's Prince of Wales float off or something like that. Right. And that is the most stressful evolution of my entire career. We undocked that ship on the last half hour of the last day of the year we could have done it. And if we hadn't done that, we would have lost three months to the entire programme because because of the weather. When you, yeah. you move these big aircraft carriers like a huge sail, you need nine tugs to do it. Um, and the weather basically through January, February, March, wouldn't have allowed us. You have to get perfect tides, perfect weather. Yeah. In Rosyth, in the winter. <laughs> um, and um, Good luck with that. Yeah, you don't have much light either in the winter, so that makes it a bit tricky. So, and we had, we it was going great. It was going great. We had this strategy. We said, you can't undock a ship like that in the middle of the winter. And... Um, it was going great. All the preparations were ready. This is about the fourteenth of December, and then we 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 found a problem with one of the one of the seals on the shaft. So it's an emergency seal that goes around around the shaft, um, and we couldn't get that to seal properly. Um, and what we actually did, we brought we flew in somebody from Canada to come and fix it. We brought in loads of spares. We restarted the factory that makes them. And then by about the 18th, 19th, we're, we're, we're re, refixing these seals. 
And um, we're on to, I think it was in, in, in Norway, is a company that makes the, makes the seal. So we can't get this to seal. What do you think it is? And this is about, we've got about one day left before you know we're blown. Yeah. Right. And they said, it might be the metal bit of the seal. So there's a rubber bit in the metal bit. They right. said, go and fight this Loctite 220. Put it in the put it in the metal bit. It'll suck it in and that'll seal it. So, so I had somebody driving around five trying to find Loctite 220. Remember right. it very clearly. That would have been the evening, evening of the 18th, maybe. Right. And uh, we said, right, we'll get this stuff. And then I sent everybody home. And they said, well, we're going to undock this. So this is the moment we had to keep everyone in. Everybody going home for Christmas, except for the team doing it. And everyone's going, mm-hmm. are we going to do this? And Neil said, look, the weather's perfect. I've ordered the tugs from Aberdeen. They're coming. Let's just see if we can win every hour for the next three days. It's a three-day evolution. Right. And um, everybody stayed. Everybody's totally committed. We got it to seal, which was great. Lloyd signed off. Um, mm-hmm. And in the next three days, we probably had one or two hours of wriggle room in the whole three days. Right. And everything, you know, the team effort was just incredible. And that was a seminal moment. That's what pulled the team together. So the mantra from the team that stayed was never give up. Right. And for everybody who went home before we did it, who a lot of cynical people, a lot of cynical people would have never happened. You'll never do that. When they came back, the 65,000 ton, 280-meter ship was somewhere else. So when they came back from Christmas, it was somewhere else, and we moved it. And that was that right. was uh, that was the moment that made that team. That yeah. was the moment, and and you need those moments to make the team. You need the, you know, the we can do anything sort of yeah. moments. Um, how, and that, and that was you, great. Do you know when something like that, and I can get a real sense just from how you're describing it. You know, the, this kind of real sense of massive achievement and that whole team pulling together and this this philosophy that you have around winning every hour you can't you haven't got an hour to waste you haven't got half an hour to waste every every hour's got to make a difference when it's when it's done how do you celebrate what happens then what's the, what's the kind of like all right we've done it now then what happens that year we went home for christmas um yeah. so we got christmas um but you, you 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 do you do need to celebrate and and um, uh, we would do things like um, we did a hog roast in the hangar right. with the team. So all the all the leadership team gave out two thousand hog roast rolls um, in, right. over lunchtime. So we, we would do quite you know in the summer we would give out ice creams. We would, so we'd find an event. Yeah, and, yeah. And, feeding and, people again. Well, and thank people. <laughs> uh, family yeah. days as well. Family yeah. days as well. And I think um, it doesn't need to be a huge amount to recognise people. They need, but they need to know, need to be recognised for it. So, so, and then a lot of a lot of visible leadership was a big part of my leadership style. I was going out to speak to people and and thanking them for them. Yeah. Um. So, so I think that's that's important. And then in any program, I mean, people yeah. are actually committed to these things. They're incredible things to do. TRU is an incredible things to do. Mm. But if nobody ever says thank you, then how do you know? Exactly. I'm going to I'm really I'm really keen to, to to talk about TRU, obviously, and our audience will be really keen to hear about it. Before before we do that, can I just ask you, I want to go back to this name that you've mentioned, John Pearson, that you worked for. You've obviously you've given us some some um, context around your own leadership style. You've acknowledged that mentors have been really important to you throughout your career. What did you learn from John? I think I think um, John was. I mean, he's ex Navy. He, he runs Portsmouth now, but right. hugely really good at pulling the team together. But also really good at pulling them together in adversity. Right. You know, so um, it it never goes well in these big programs. I mean, even when it even when you deliver well, you've you've gone through a hundred different problems to get there, and that sort of leadership style with with quite a lot of humour and fun. Right. around how do we deal with some really difficult, horrible issues. It was also really great, and I take this away, my leadership style is when you ask people to do scary things, and I don't mean scary as in dangerous, we don't ask people to do dangerous things, but scary yeah. things as in we're not sure if we can achieve this. Yeah, Putting your arm around them to go, it doesn't matter if we don't achieve it, but we'll never achieve it unless we try. Yeah, uh, And, you know, that sort of support, uh, I had a very similar boss and on, on Prince of Wales who did a very similar thing which is mm. you know 
you'll never you'll never excel unless you try the hard stuff. Right. Um, and and you know I've, I've been lucky to have quite a few bosses that I've had, I've had a few not like that as well. But, um, <laughs> and we learn from them as well, don't we? Well, we, yeah. It's I mean, them day, I'm never going to behave like that. Yeah, exactly. I didn't, yeah. I didn't like the way that individual made me feel. Um, so, yeah, I, and and that you know the insight there is leadership really does make a difference. Yeah. You know, you can have all the process and the planning and everything else, but unless somebody steps up and 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 leads and helps, then these big programs don't happen. Yeah, absolutely. So talking of big programs then, you've you've done the um the Prince of Wales and then from there, how do you end up where you are now? How do you end up? Yeah. I mean I reflected <laughs> on that question because I'm not sure I've got a great answer. And and I think there's a couple of things. Um I, I finished what in, in the nineteen on, on Prince of Wales and, and I thought, well, what did you do after you've done an aircraft carrier? It was this magical program that that I have you know, rose tinted spectacles about now. It was horrible a lot of it when we did it, but right. rose tinted spectacles now. But you think you if you, if you to get out of bed in the morning, you kinda of gotta do something different. Exactly. Um, we done I did I did quite a lot of work with the Queen's Ferry Crossing team. Um when we did carry, we did a lot of sharing with them. I thought, well that's interesting. And I didn't want to get out of big program management. I also I also have a view that if if you truly are, you know, a world class program leader, yeah, then you should be able to do it in any domain. Mm. So I thought, well, this came up. I thought, well, that's pretty incredible, and it's it it ticks a lot of boxes of things that would get me out of bed in the morning, and it's quite different. It's yeah. quite different. So, um, so Tia, you came up. I thought, well, that's fascinating, and and railway railways are fascinating. So they they have quite an intoxicated mix of quite you know quite heavy construction yeah. uh, activities, yeah. but also quite a lot of high technology. And they're hugely complex. I mean, TIU as a job, I, I would argue is the most complex um, construction job in the country. Now, I'm, I'm sure if you run Hinkley Point or HS2, you'll, you'll challenge that. And I think that technically they are right. You know, Hinkley Point or HS2 is technically a far more challenging base than what we've got. But we're trying to do it on a live railway. Yeah. So, we're not, so we have to put the railway back every night and every, every weekend. And... Um, the guy who worked for me, his analogy was you're trying to do open heart surgery on a long on a marathon runner while they're oh, running. God, yeah. That's and, a analogy. Yeah. And and but doing it well is an, is an incredible thing. And it's also got a lot of technology, and then you've got the connectivity to communities and the people. And when we get it right, you know, it makes a difference to people. But when we get it wrong, it makes a difference to people as well. Now, on other programs I've had, when you get it wrong, you close the doors and you can scratch your head and you go, How are we going to fix this? When we get it wrong, the clock starts ticking and you're going, well, the railway reopens in six hours. Better yeah. get on with it. Pretty hard stop there. <laughs> yeah. So it has it has totally different challenges. So so why why TRU? I mean, it, it, it's it's an incredible programme. Um, it make a huge difference to millions of people. And it, is, it has levels of complexity that, that challenge me mentally, you know, really challenge you in yeah. terms of both your ability and your leadership style. Yeah. So it's a, it's a it's a fabulously wickedly complex problem to solve. There, are there any is there anything that surprised you about the railway? I think I think that there's lots there's lots and lots of things. Um, firstly, this question surprised me. Um, <laughs> Sorry, but, Neil. <laughs> but, 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 but secondly, there's there's a lot of common stuff. I think how you do things. Yeah. Um, but the the the, the railway is is wickedly complex yeah so if, if if you are if you don't know much about it you can sit looking like, well that's not complex it's some steel rails it's some signaling it's some wires up in the air getting it all to work together that's yeah. really complex yeah. and then building it over what 80 miles which is what tru is that's really really tough so um the more you know every day i look at it and go this is surprisingly complex but the but if you can you can crystallize it down into small little chunks that are quite simple. And that's the challenge. The challenge for us is how do you make it simple and efficient, even though the whole was quite big and complex. Yeah. And if we can do that, we'll be really successful. So so that the the I wouldn't say it surprised me, but I've been pleasantly surprised 
it's quite it was quite an easy transition personally because the people are great right you know lots of people are inquisitive about where you've come from quite respectful um and very supportive you know i came in knowing absolutely nothing about it and compared to people who've always worked with i still know nothing about it yeah but they are you know as, as long as you, you behave the right way people are very very helpful and supportive and, and i've i've found it a really welcoming environment they call it the railway family and it and it and it, and it truly is people look after each other yeah um I also think because it's a tough environment, I, I don't I don't think there's a tougher environment on land. I Maybe mean, Stanfast possibly doing farming. Mm. But you know, it's a you know, working at night, working at weekends, out of hours, in the cold and the rain, up in the Pennines, that's a tough job. You know, so people look after each other and I think yeah. it's a great environment like that. And it is it's a great thing to do. It's a great thing to do because you know the 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 railways are the fabric of how we run the country, how yeah. people get about. So, and that for me is the is kind of a, a fundamental difference in terms of the huge things that you've done before, because we wouldn't, the you know, kind of of Joe or Joanne public wouldn't be seeing a a fighter plane or an aircraft carrier. But what you're building now and the legacy of what you're in charge of and the team that, that you're working with are putting together, mm. it's, it's real legacy stuff. You can take Elliot and Imogen to see that and say, yeah, your dad did that. You know, it's it's quite it's massive, isn't it? Because it does affect society, the communities that are along the route and actually the lives of the people that are involved in in actually making it happen as well. So the, it's far reaching. The impact is so far reaching. And the, the I guess the, the reason behind the question um, in relation to the railway for me, so I've, I'm kind of ten and a half years, but to to your point, you know, that's still I'm still very much the new girl in many ways, in relation to my experience of working with the industry. I didn't know how complex it was until I joined. I'm doing a completely different job to you, obviously. Um, for me, the biggest, most wonderful thing about it is the people. It's the mm. passion that people have for what they do is incredible, and. Um, I chaired, I, I chaired um, an event, a Women in Rail event a few months ago, and some of your team were there. We had um, Suzanne Matheson was there, Hannah Lomas was there, mm. and we, we were having this discussion around um, major major programmes. And what each and every person who contributed, so there was some people there from, from the programme at Crew as well, every single panel member and each question that the audience asked what we all realised by the end of the two-hour session was it's this is all about the people. Mm. Yes, there's, there's, there's bits of track and, yes, there's some innovative technology and there's all of that other stuff that's going on, but ultimately it's about the people that are delivering it. Mm. Um, and so much that you're sharing with us around leadership and team, it's critical, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and um, in terms of safety, in terms of how we do it, I mean, fundamentally, they always had built. I mean... They, I, I know we have lots of machinery we bring in and mm. put track down in tampers and, and make it more efficient. But it's a construction job. It's fundamentally, it doesn't pop out a factory. There's no robots that do it. You know, mm. it is a hand-built piece of work. Yeah. And you need people to um, be really good at it and work well at it to make it work. But you also need the same for them to be safe. Yes. And it is, a, it is a very, very hazardous environment. So if people don't look after each other and they don't work well, then it becomes unsafe. And that's yeah. a huge anxiety. If you think of what do I lose sleep at night, that's number one thing. That's it. Yeah, understandable. So moving on to the to the the next part, the middle bit in the uh, in the podcast conversation. What are your three wishes, Neil? Having been in, and I think this is interesting in relation to because you, as you say, you, you're relatively new into the industry. So you will be seeing things with a different perspective. And also because you're potentially then comparing it with different industry sectors that you've worked in. If I gave you three wishes, what would you want to be different? I mean, it's a difficult one, isn't it? You don't want to waste your three wishes. And you can't ask for another three wishes, can you? So, <laughs> um, I, I mean, the first one I wrote down, and it sounds a bit boring, but I'll try and unpack it a little bit, is it, how do you make it a truly integrated team and environment? So what, what we've done in TRU is to try and create an integrated enterprise where everybody related to the programme is in the team, you know, be it the Department of Transport, Network Rail, 
uh, all our partners that we work with, uh, the train operating companies, everyone. But that that's in an environment that isn't integrated. You know, the the the, the, the railways are federated and, and and that makes them difficult to operate in. Yeah. And you know, I just I've just come back from a holiday in France and we've got the TGV from Marseille up to Paris and you think this is an integrated system and everybody here is one part of one integrated team and you can see it. You can really see how it works, you know. And you, we see it. We see it as well when you go to London and you and you get in TFL. You know that really works, you know. And uh, I, I know that's what I was trying to do in, on GBR. But you know, for these really complex integrated programs, if we had a world that ran around us that was totally integrated as well, our lives would work much much better. So, so I'm positive about that. I think what we're doing creates that integrated enterprise. But it is not in an environment that is naturally integrated, so that would really help. So, how do you genuinely create one team in the railway, and it and it isn't really one team in the way that it's set up at the moment? Um, the next one would be how do I get the best resource of people possible? Now I know apparently there's some other railway program down the road called HS2, <laughs> um, but I think you know how would you get the absolute best people? You know you, you, the you sometimes in these programs you you just need the best people otherwise you won't get the right answer um and and if i could do we would um it's not easy it's really not easy but the flip side to that is what what a great opportunity to build the next generation so you know the previous programs i've got you never start with the team that you need you never start with the team that you need mm. but you finish with the team that you need so um we will finish with a world-class team yeah now that's that's that could sound very unfair to the people there right now because a lot of them are world-class actually yeah but have we really pulled together and made the most of the people we've got and maybe brought in some extra help and developed the people we've got yeah. and we're on that journey uh but if i had a magic wand you could go Ching, you've got the best people in the world then yeah um that would be that would be a great thing to you've do. Got, you make such a good point there, and it's because it, the team will evolve, won't it, over time? And different people come to the fore at different points, and and you know learn from each other, etc. I think what what the industry's known, and actually other industry sectors have known for quite a long time now, is that we've got an aging workforce. So we've got people who are dropping off that end of the of the spectrum because they are due to retire. And many of them who would who have been due to retire for a few years, but have kept going because they wanted to. But actually, there's a point, um, you know, I know that there's, there's there's one of the guys, one of the engineers at Metrolink is in his 70s. And it's like there's a there's a limit here, even, oh, for, yeah. you know, even for people who want to keep going. So we've got an aging workforce, but also what we've not been good enough at is bringing young people in at the other end because we're not making ourselves look as attractive and as compelling a proposition for a career as we as we should be doing, and as we are as a rail industry. So we've got less than 5% of the workforce are age 25 and younger. So for your talent pipeline, so you obviously you need loads of people who've got experience, but also you need to be growing your own, don't you, so that you've got mm. the experience you need. But as a whole, coming back to your first point, as a whole industry... We're not very good at that. Well, and I think engineering, Britain's a funny place for engineering. It's different having lived in Germany and France, America, mm. uh, where engineering is sort of a top, top, well-respected job. Uh, and I think we need to change that. You yeah. know, I, I don't, I couldn't do a job that's just, say, sitting in an office for the rest of your life. And I, I can't get, not enough great people going to engineering no. in the first place. And then the people, a lot of good people are engineering go off and do office jobs. And I know, and by office jobs, I mean, they train for four or five years to get be great engineers and they go and be accountants and lawyers. And I, I don't have anything against accountants and lawyers. Mm. And it wouldn't get me out of bed in the morning. No. You know, so I, I, um, <laughs> no. I you know, I've, I've lived this wonderful career where I've got to do things that nobody nobody's ever had the chance to do. You know, I, I, was, I was in Standish Tunnel a couple of months ago. I mean, Standish Tunnel, have you ever got a chance? It's three miles long. It was wow. built by hand in the, by the Victorians. It's just an unbelievable piece of work. So I get I get to see and do things that 
that, that most people would normally get to do. But what's for sure is if, if you do you know, engineering at university, then you go get an office job. You'll never see those things. You'll never see those things. You know? You'll see a, a computer screen, some meeting rooms, and social media were the most exciting thing you see all day. You know? I so I I, uh, I I would encourage people to get into this. I mean, I mean, what interesting things we do. Put on put on your orange, orange overalls yeah. and your high yeah. vis and go out and see the incredible things and make a big difference. You know, yeah. what what a great experience. Bit bit hard work, but what a great experience for young graduates to go out and run night shifts and, and be involved in that. Yeah. yeah. And didn't you, you you're involved with some early year stuff as well, aren't yeah. you, in terms of encouraging so, people? Yes, yeah, so we've got an early careers program that that um Early Careers Network that I, I sponsor, and, and that's great. I mean, I can't take any credit for it. The, 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 the group set themselves up over COVID, and I said, well, this is a great thing, I'll sponsor it. And if you want to do, you know, events and conferences, I'll pay for those. Yeah. But, um, yeah, and some really great stuff coming out of it. So I think, I think there's a passion there. So we have to bring people in, but we have to keep them as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and creating those great experiences where people go, well, I couldn't get this anywhere else. That's that's part, part of this. And, and, and to go and tell everybody else. Tell your friends how amazing yeah, it is as well. It's and, a, another it's thing a is, tangent there. but Well, and I think linked to that is our, our social value programme is a massive part of this. Uh, it was kicked off as a levelling up programme. And, and the amount of work we're doing uh, between... York, Leeds and Manchester, particularly on how we develop people. We've got some pretty tough targets about recruiting locally. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I talked a little bit about the competition and there's a lot going on in the construction world and engineering world at the moment. And I think we want to, re- uh, you know, recruit and retain people. We do that locally. Yeah. So if you're in Huddersfield or Dewsbury and all those places, mm. you know, all around the north of England, we'd, we'd love to have you on the programme. Yeah. Perfect. Third wish. You've got one left. Third wish. Um, I, I I wish the railways could really, really deeply invest in innovation and technology. Um, yeah. Having having come from defence and where, you know, it goes in layers, aerospace investment, huge amounts of money in it. You know, regs, technology, um, you know, leading edge stuff. Uh Ships do quite a lot, and then you get to railways, which is quite fragmented. And there's there's not really any big players that go, we're really going to develop world class technology for the next generation. Yeah. You know, so we we are not leading the world. Um, we're good, but we're not leading the world. Uh, and I think without uh, a big player in the mix that you know is going to develop what we're going to be doing in the next ten to twenty years, mm. then we'll struggle. Yeah. We'll struggle, and and. You know, talk about that number one wish about a truly integrated team. Well, because we're fragmented, we don't have enough scale and momentum to develop mm. uh, some really some really great stuff, be that, you know, new rolling stock or the technologies uh, around the railway or how do we deliver the railway and maintain it efficiently. So I think I think for me, if we, we need a different strategy, a different way of working for really long-term innovation technology so that so the UK really has world-class in railways yeah. as opposed to what do we buy from countries that have that long-term capability and strategy. Yeah. And yeah. That, that, that is something we have to really think about um, and, and not having really big primes and big players in the mix or mm-hmm. network rail leading on that is, is a challenge. Yeah. So we do lots of great stuff, but you know, if, if we could be an awful lot bigger and better. You know? Better, yeah. Brilliant. Some good wishes there, Neil, some, and some different ones as well. We tend to have, as you would imagine, you know, there's a there's a trend or a theme that goes through what people would really like. Um, and I guess, you know, we've been having these conversations for, for nearly three years now. So people are asking for different things at different time. We started it during the global pandemic. So uh, really interesting and thought provoking. Thank you. Thank you. Um, third and final part of our podcast mm-hmm. conversation what inspires you? What what gets you out of bed in the morning? What do you do if you need an energy boost to kind of, you know, just just rev yourself back up again? Yeah, so I think there's two bits to this. So there's, there's what inspires you at work and then what generally gives you energy. Yeah. So yeah. For, for me, what inspires my work is, is engaging in visible leadership. You know, I, I try and do as much of that as I can, and that can just be walking the office floor plate, doing team briefs, being out on site. But 
you know, spending time with the people who work for us and finding their, out their stories and, 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 and what, what gets them going. Um, so, so basically being out there and, and being visible, that, that gives me energy. Um, if I have to sit in front of a team's call for, for too long, I kind of run out of energy. Um, I'll take that as a hint. We're, we're nearly there. You're all right. <laughs> no, this is, I thought we're on Zoom anyway. We're on Zoom. So, um, but, you know, we have, got, we have got into days and days of meetings and, and that whole question around what gives you energy, then um, yeah. we, we, need, we need to be doing more of that. Yeah. The, the, um, the next one's, I think, I think family. Um, these jobs are tough. I travel quite a lot, so when I'm when I'm when I'm back, I try and spend as much time uh, uh, doing family time, doing stuff for the kids and and and, and with Catherine and so on. So um, and that's a big part to me. I mean, I, I think nobody does these sorts of jobs and doesn't feel guilty about getting the work life balance right. Yeah. So how do you spend time time with the family? Uh, a mountain bike in the winter, I ski. I try and do quite a bit of sport. And I do actually listen to podcasts. Actually, I do. I do listen to podcasts. So, so I wrote down. There's, there's probably two that I listen to. Um, I write yours down next. I'll, I'll get into those. <laughs> um, I think you'll enjoy them. I do. I'll, I'll go back through my apologies for that. I should have done my research. But um, um, I definitely listen to so the Mark Kermode film review. Just, just kind of swipes that on. Right. And then there's one called Hardcore Histories that I listen to, which is a bit of a strange one, but that sort of unpacks some pretty challenging things that have happened in, in history okay. um but in, in quite quite an overt way and, and and that i find that really insightful because history's had a whole load of really difficult challenging things coming to it and that unpacks you know everything from the mongol empire to the second world war and everything like that so oh, um I, I think that you know sort of puts some of the challenges we've got in the world these days into context so but do that. I try and I try and get out mountain biking every Saturday and 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 do do as much exercise as I can, which is probably not enough. Right. Um, but yeah, I think the reflection on there is: is have I always got that right? The work life balance in my career, probably not. And and I suppose if I was to have a chat with my younger self, I'd say that you probably compromise some things right. between your social life and your family. You didn't need to. You right. didn't need to. You went to. You prioritised work over the family sometimes when actually you thought it was important, but actually probably nobody else cared. So yeah. I try and say that. I try and say that to my team. I said, "Look, you know, there's times when your family's far more important. Just go and do that. Nobody yeah. will notice if you miss a couple of days at work. You know, just tell me what you're doing. But but your family will remember. Your family yeah. will remember if, if you miss your daughter's fourth birthday or whatever it happens to be. Yeah. Catherine certainly reminds me of it. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, so. So that, think, those sorts of things are important. Do you, do you think times have changed on that, Neil? Generally, I th I think I don't know whether it's whether it's going through the pandemic and people, um, people's um, our world changed, didn't it? So we were spending a lot more time with family and maybe realizing what we'd been missing. Um, and I appreciate that might not be for everybody, but I definitely feel that people are, are better able to balance things. I don't think there's a perfect balance and I don't I don't think I've ever met anyone who would say that they've got it right. I really don't. I remember being at a, at a seminar years ago and somebody asked it was a it was a women in business conference and one of the people from the floor asked can can women have it all? And the person who was speaking was Eve Pollard, um journalist and she said, "Yeah, they can, just not all at the same time." Yeah. So, mm -hmm. it's kind of working out what your priorities are at that point in your life. And that changes as well, doesn't it? As you said, as, you, as your kids Absolutely. are different ages and they're doing different things. And, and my experience with my daughter, she's 20 now and she's she's been at uni for two years. She's going over to Amsterdam to do a year study abroad. So those years where I kind of think like, wish I'd spent a bit more time with her then because I can't do it now. But so, so everything changes and you've got to make the best of it at the time, haven't you? I, I think our balance between presenteeism and understanding contribution is much better is yeah. much better yeah. and and i think you know what gives me energy well one of the key things that i drop on a friday i'm generally back at home and i drop the kids off at school and yeah. that kind of it's quite a big thing for me it doesn't sound big but it's a big it's a it big thing big. for me yeah um and i can count on one hand you know when when i was at reciting carrier how many times i dropped the kids off at school or nursery you yeah. know on one hand 
and I almost do it every week now. But that doesn't mean I'm working any less hard. It just means I've rescheduled my diary so that, yeah. you know, half eight till nine o'clock on a Friday, I'm dropping the kids off at school. Yeah. And I think people are much better at that. I think so. I would say I have seen a different behaviour in people in the railway. People in the railway are far more family focused, I think. Mm. When, it, when I came out of defence, and that's not a criticism of defence because there's loads of great people, but, um, you know, my, my, my current boss, you know, if I say it's Imogen's birthday, I remember I had a conversation quite early in the thing, in, in the job. I think I had a board meeting, a main board. He said, yeah. well, I'll just do that. You can do your Imogen's only ever going to have one fifth birthday. Yeah. You have loads of board meetings. Mm. And that was a great, conversation and I said that was reflected quite a lot on that yeah whereas previously in my old career my previous career I've had moments where I said well it's, it's so-and-so's birthday I said well I need you to come to this meeting right and that's an important learning point for me it really is yeah yeah and and part of of your leadership style as well I know um Neil, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I knew I would. There are so many more things I want to ask you, but I'm so conscious of time. So we, we, you know, we we kind of like to to keep the conversation tight so that people listening into it have got enough time to listen all the way through. Um, so I I would very much like to continue the conversation at some point in the future, perhaps when the when the program's got a little bit further down the line, and, and we might Love to do that, yeah. an update on that. Um, thank you so much. I've been inspired. I've learned stuff. Um, I found it so interesting. Um, I lived and worked in Glasgow for a while myself, so I can listen to the, to your accent all day long as well, to be fair. So um, thank you. Huge thanks from me. I know that our audience are going to appreciate hearing this career story um, and, and be inspired by you as well. So thank you so much. That was a real pleasure. A real pleasure. And I'm happy to come back in a couple of years once we've got a few more stories to tell about TOU. Brilliant. Thank you, Neil. Thanks, Ed. Thank you so much to Neil for sharing his career story with us on this episode of the Intuitive Insights podcast.